Well, church, it brings me pleasure to ask you to open your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Titus. You'll find that, by the way, if you want to use the Pew Bible, on page 998. I'm excited this morning as we begin our fall study in this wonderful and I think very powerful little book that was written long ago, I trust, for our edification and encouragement. So the book of Titus, in fact, I... I, I do have good news for you today, and it's all about Jesus, okay? So we got, and we're just going to spend this morning thinking about good news and God's greatness, and I trust that will be a great work in our heart as God works through his word and his spirit. Uh, before we get to the good news, a little bit of sad news, I do have to let you know that um, our dear sister Barbara Rogers, uh, this was her last Sunday here. In fact, is Barbara here? I haven't even verified that. There she is up there. Hi, Barbara. Uh, we love you. Uh, we're going to miss you. Barbara is headed out west, out to Colorado to be with her uh, daughter. And uh, so she is uh, leaving us, but we trust that we, we shall see you soon. And uh, we're thankful for you, sister, and we're going to pray for you uh, this morning. So uh, before we do, I would like you now to uh, consider these uh, first four verses in this wonderful letter, Titus chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Savior. Our Father, we're thankful now for your word And even as Josh has reminded us this morning from Proverbs 2, that your word is indeed a treasure. In fact, we think it's more than a treasure. We think it's living. We think it's abiding. We think it's transforming. We believe it to be the very words of our Creator and our Savior. And so, Father, we ask you that you would help us to attend our minds to it, submit our wills to it, find our love in it. And so, Father, as we come now to your word, bless us, speak to us. And in particular, we pray for our dear sister Barbara as she uh, moves on, Father, in her life. We pray that you would continue to guide and lead her. We're thankful for the short time that she's been here as a member of Hamilton Baptist Church. Father, we pray that this time in Colorado would be filled with rich blessings and service to you. And so, go with her, Father, as we Trust you will. Fill her with your spirit as you continue to bless her and use her. Even now, fill us with your spirit as we come to your word, that you would teach us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was in the year 69 AD when the Roman general Vespasian had taken the Roman troops and besieged Jerusalem, which was in rebellion to Roman rule. Well, during this siege, Vespasian received word 
that, the, that Emperor Nero, the Roman Caesar, had committed suicide. And Vespasian, longing for the Roman throne himself, took a bulk of those troops that had surrounded Jerusalem, and he headed back to Rome to fight for his, his right to rule the Roman Empire. The troops that remained there besieging Jerusalem were put under the charge of Vespasian's son named Titus. And about a year later, 70 A.D., Titus would lead the Roman troops into Jerusalem, conquering Jerusalem, burning the temple to the ground, just as Jesus had predicted. About 10 years later, Titus himself, in the year 79 AD, after the death of his father, would become Caesar. He would reign for two years there in Rome. By the way, just a little uh, trivia if you're interested, Titus would be the first Roman Caesar to actually succeed his biological father. And so uh, he would uh, be, even in his couple years of reigning, erect a number of monuments to himself, of course. Um, you could still see Titus's arch, which is a magnificent structure commemorating the destruction of Jerusalem. And he has but, uh, you know, monuments all, all around the, the remains of the Roman Empire. He is, if you will, we could call him, for our purposes this morning, the world's Titus. Well, the church has a Titus too, don't we? Uh, he, he is here found in this book in which we are going to consider. In fact, if you, it, it, there, there are no arches bearing this Titus's name. And, and you'll go around the Roman Empire, the, the ravages of it, and you, will, you won't find any monuments to him. In fact, uh, you, you won't find him in the history books. But what you will find is this Titus in the book of books which we consider here. In fact, one author has put it this way, no one looks to the world's Titus hoping to learn lessons on how to live. Today, however, people the world over study Paul's memo to the church's Titus and weigh every word and search its significance. And so that's what we plan on doing this fall. See, isn't that good news, right? We are going to work our way through this little book. We are, as I like to do, and maybe you don't, but that's okay. I'm in charge here, um, at, least, at least during this preaching time, of course. God's in charge, ultimately. Don't misquote me, please. Um, but we are going to weigh every word of this little 46-verse book that Paul wrote, which we call Titus. Of course, we call it that because that's who the letter is written to. We see that in verse 4, don't you? To Titus, my true child in a common faith. This is one of four letters that Paul would write to individuals. Three of those letters would be written specifically to pastors. Titus being one, and First and Second Timothy, the other two. We call those three books in the Bible the pastoral epistles, or if you will, letters to pastors. Now, Titus is not just mentioned here in the book that is addressed to him. He's actually throughout the New Testament. In fact, I would even um, perhaps encourage you this week, maybe you want to just search up all the places in which Titus is mentioned. And he's an incredible story of this man that's used mightily by God. You find him throughout uh, Paul's writings and so forth, and I trust you'll be encouraged by that. We're not sure, just to give you a little biographical sketch of him, we're not sure when he was converted to Christianity or, or by which means, but we know that he was converted to Christianity early. He might have been a convert from, from Paul. Of course, Paul there in verse 4 calls him my true child. And so that might be a reference to Paul being, giving him spiritual birth, if you will, leading him to Christ. We're not sure. The first time that Titus is mentioned chronologically in the Bible is in the book of Galatians. You read in chapter 2. 
Paul, in this autobiographical portion of Galatians, says, After 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them the gospel that I had proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. In other words, what we see is that Paul's bringing Titus, this this Gentile convert to Christ, to Jerusalem, to the apostles, as exhibit A, that God saves Gentiles, right? He is the prototype, if you will, that salvation is by faith alone and not through religious ritual and law-keeping. And, and of course, the apostles receive Titus as a believer and a fellow Christian, and they d- decide there that we are not going to require for those who come to Christ to keep the Jewish law and, and the rituals, and spe- specifically the rite of circumcision. And so Titus then um, moves on from that point. See, he's just not evidence that God saves Gentiles. He actually becomes Paul's co-laborer. And so we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, for instance, as for Titus, Paul writes, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. In in other words, what Paul has sent Titus to Corinth, and he's been given the very difficult task of kind of straightening and pastoring Corinth. And you remember Corinth, if you remember anything about 1st or even 2nd Corinthians, it's not a uh, model church. It is a church filled with immorality. They're getting drunk at the, at the Lord's Supper. They're, they're committing sexual uh, immorality and, and, and very perverse um, immorality at that. And so Paul says, Titus, you're up. This is for you to take care of. And uh, amazingly, Titus's ministry was successful. The church repents, and he returns to Paul rejoicing. But that being, being successful in that ministry simply just uh, earned Titus now the, the reputation of being Paul's troubleshooter, if you will. Like, so all the most difficult tasks are now going to be assigned to you, which is why Titus has been left on the island of Crete, as you see in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. We, putting the pieces together, discover that Paul, late in his ministry, somewhere probably in the early 60s, along with Titus, traveled to Crete. And it, and it was perhaps Paul and Titus that brought the gospel there. We're not sure how the gospel got to Crete. Maybe, maybe it was already there. We know, by the way, that when Peter preached his sermon at Pentecost, there were Cretans there who had received Christ, and so maybe they took it back to their island. But however it got there, we know that Paul, Paul couldn't stay long, but he leaves Titus behind, as you see there in verse 5, to finish his work. He says, I'm leaving you here to do these things. Titus, you're to specifically guide these developing and vulnerable churches. And this is what Titus is going to do on this island. This is what this letter is all about. Just to finish Titus's story, in case you're interested Um, After ministering on the Crete for a little while, Paul will send reinforcements who will take Titus' place. Titus will return to Paul, uh, who's at this point in Greece. And then eventually we read in 2 Timothy that Paul will send Titus up into Dalmatia, which is, by the way, modern-day Croatia, there to do do mission work. And the ancient historian Eusebius, it's not recorded in the Bible, but Eusebius tells us that when Titus was old, he returned to Crete there and spent the remainder of his days pastoring one of the churches on the island of Crete. Of course, we, we find Titus on this island here in this letter. And by the way, he has his work cut out for him. Crete 
was an immoral and wicked place, perhaps the most immoral of all places in the ancient Roman world. It was, if you will, the Las Vegas of its day. This little island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, historians will tell us that the people maintain a constant state of drunkenness, that the politicians were more corrupt on the island of Crete than perhaps anywhere else in the world, and Cretans in particular had a reputation for lying. So there's a Greek word, and to roughly translate it, it means to Crete, and that is slang in the Greek language to lie. So this very name of the island and the very name of these people has become to associate with dishonesty and corruption and vice. And by the way, Paul is all aware of this, as you see in verse 12 of chapter 1. One of the Cretans, he says, a prophet of his own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So so tell us what you really think, right? Right? I mean, they're li- these people are lying, they're lazy, they're gluttonous, they're evil. And by the way, well, you know, Paul, what do you think about this Cretan testimony? Look at verse 13. Paul says, this testimony is true, right? That's right. That's what they're like. And so have a good time, Titus, um, as you try to straighten these people out and work amongst these churches. But I'm, I'm afraid if you think about that little uh, description of the Cretans, well, if we're perhaps humble enough, we might think, well, this book might be pretty relevant to us in our day. Raising the question, how is it that we live out our faith in a dishonest, antagonistic, self-focused culture? I mean, are those not the issues we wrestle with today? I mean, how does the church survive in a place like that? In fact, how does the church thrive without adopting the same characteristics of the culture? Or as Paul put it, How does the truth lead to godliness? Which seems to be the theme of this book. How does truth bring us to righteousness and Christ-likeness and to godliness? How does the gospel create a, a community of people that love each other and glorify God and spread the kingdom? Because the culture is all about self-fulfillment and going and being true to yourself and seeking your own. But the Christians there are to be self-controlled. They're to deny themselves, even sacrifice for the good of others. And the women in that culture, as we'll discover, are always full of alcohol and gossip. But the Christian women weren't. And the the young men in that culture were pursuing every kind of passion with no no inhibition. But the Christian men weren't. And all of them were, you know, on Crete were disobedient to the rulers. But the Christians, Paul says, are to be submissive. And sadly, I think this is a radical thought today. And yet this, it seems like this book is for us. What, what is Hamilton Baptist Church supposed to be about? What are we doing here? Why, why has God had a people called Hamilton Baptist Church for 129 years? And why, God willing, will he have it for 130 and 131? What is the point? Well, Titus answers those questions. In fact, today we're just going to consider the introduction. In the verse, first four verses, we see Paul's introducing himself. Verse 1, Paul, servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and so forth. Um, 
He's, this is very kind of customary of this day. You know, we end our letters by putting our names down. They would actually begin their letters, which I think is probably makes more sense. By the way, I want you to know who this is from. It's from Paul. Now you can go ahead and read it. So it's not surprising that Paul introduces himself. He does that in every letter he writes. But what is surprising is the length of his introduction. In fact, in nowhere else in Paul's writings do we find an introduction quite as long as this. It's almost like a resume, isn't it? And, and you would think, well, Titus has spent quite a bit of time with Paul. Doesn't he know all this information after all? I mean, when I write a letter to a friend, I don't say to them, well, uh, you know, this is Stephen Carn, an ordained minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, senior pastor in Hamilton Baptist Church, seminary graduate, and all the rest, right? Well, we don't do that. So what's going on? Why is Paul laying out his resume? Well, though this letter is personal, it's not private. I think it's going to be shared amongst these churches on the island. I think so because to help Titus, we see in verse 5 that one of the jobs for Titus is to point elders in, in every kind of village church. Now, can you imagine someone coming to Hamilton Baptist and hanging out for a month or two, and then when, when that time is done, he stands up and says, okay, I want you to know I'm now going to appoint elders for your church. Right? And we would think, I'm sorry, who do you think you are? I mean, who gave you that right? And at this point, Titus will say, well, I'll tell you who gave me that right. It was a man named Paul. Have you heard of him? Let me tell you about him. He was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a servant of God and so forth, as we'll see. And so I think this is, this is kind of uh, going to give, give Titus some authority to do what Paul is calling him to do. But it, additionally, we also see that Paul is really in this introduction laying out kind of the, his goal in life, his purpose. What does he live for? And... and, and, and by extension, Titus, this is what you should live for. And, and this is what the churches on Crete should give their lives to. And this is, I think, in many ways, what Hamilton Baptist Church should give its life to. And so my prayer, and maybe you'll pray with me this fall, that God would accomplish in Hamilton Baptist Church what he sought to accomplish in the churches on the island of Crete some 2,000 years ago. That is, that truth would lead to godliness. And so we see here, if you will, Paul's mission a mission I think he wants us to embrace. It's perhaps a mission that could be understood in three words, position, purpose, and practice. Position, purpose, and practice. We begin by seeing Paul's position there in verse 1. Uh, by the way, we're going to spend most of our time on verse 1, so don't, don't get too, too alarmed if we're not into verse 2 and a certain point on your uh, wristwatch or anything like that. Okay. So Paul, he, looking, he said, Paul is servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ. So there are two titles or two positions in which Paul seems to have taken. Let's, let's do the second one first, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, the word apostle is used in the New Testament in two different kinds of ways. Sometimes it's used very generally. And so apostle will be used to describe a, uh, a missionary or kind of like a pioneering church planner. And so when you read the Bible, you'll, you'll see Barnabas is called an apostle and Titus is called an apostle and Timothy is called an apostle and Silas is called an apostle. Some guy named Unia is called an apostle and on and on and on. So it's kind of general term for a, a missionary or a pioneering church planner. But more frequently, what we'll find is the word apostle is used to refer to a small group of men who, were, who, who accomplished two things. Where one, were eyewitnesses of the Lord and his resurrection. And two, chosen by Jesus Christ to set the foundation of the church. So Paul would write in Ephesians 2.20 that, uh, that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. 
So the way Paul's using the term apostle here is to describe this unique and unrepeated group of 12 men. And I, I believe, though I'm speculating here, that God had chosen Paul to replace Judas, who was a false apostle. And so Paul, of course, came to Christ later in life, as you know. In fact, he would say he's an apostle, but one, to quote him, abnormally born. That is, he, he became an apostle as the risen Lord appeared to him on the road and commissioned him into this office. So the, he is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they, the apostles, you should know, are vested with the authority of Christ. The apostles are able to speak on on behalf of God to God's people. Now, in this way, the apostles are long gone. This is an unrepeated group. We don't have apostles like this. They're dead. So the question is, well, where do we find the apostolic authority, which sometimes you hear that phrase? Well, let me just be brief and clear at the same time. Apostolic authority does not come from a, from a church-created office called a bishop or cardinal. It does not come from, certainly, the See of Rome. The authority of the apostles is found where? Well, it's in the scripture, isn't it? It's in their word, right? And, and it's not in some supposed successor. It's in the words in which they have written. So Paul would write to Timothy, and he said, what you have heard from me, I need you to pass on to faithful men so that they can teach it to others, which you, might make you think, well, what, what do you mean, Paul? I mean, who do you think you are? You're like, Take what I taught and then teach it to others so that they could teach it to others, and on and on we go. Well, he, he thinks he's an apostle of Jesus Christ is what he thinks. And therefore, when he teaches, when he speaks, he speaks as, as the very word of God. I think this is important because sometimes we misunderstand this. In fact, my son is in a, a, a Christian Boy Scout troop. And, and at the beginning of every meeting, there's about a 10-minute devotion that one of the dads give. And I was listening in, uh, to one of the dads give a devotional, and he was very well-meaning, I trust, but he was teaching out of the Gospels. And he says, listen, boys, I want you to understand that these are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, not some, some secondary kind of guy like Paul or Peter. Now, I understand that we worship the Lord, and we don't worship Paul and Peter, but the confusing idea is that somehow the Gospels are more the Word of God than the book of Titus, for instance. And so I want to be unequivocal here that the entire 66 book, um, books of the Bible all are the Word of God and are of all equal weight and authority in our lives. Amen? Amen? We should affirm that. There are many people, and many of them, again, are well-meaning, running around called red-letter Christians and say so we just need to focus on the words of Jesus and get rid of the words of Paul and Peter and John and all the rest. And I would just say we are certainly dismissing the very word of God if we are doing so. So Paul is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've titled this little section, Our Position. That is not our position, in case you're wondering. This is just Paul's position and the other 11. But you notice he uses a second title or a second position, which we might find some relevance for us, as he calls himself a servant of God, which is interesting, isn't it? An apostle of Jesus Christ and yet, at the same time, he thinks of himself as God's servant. In fact, that's really not the best translation. In fact, you probably have a footnote, don't you, uh, there? It's the Greek word, uh, maybe you've heard this word, doulos. It's actually the most frequent word used to describe a believer. And it's not, not a servant, but it's a slave. And it, it must be, and I, I could understand the, the tension here, that because of our um, sinful and wicked history in the English-speaking world, 
that the translators in the New Testaments don't like to use the term slave when referring to Christians and their relationship to God. And despite that, this is exactly what Paul is saying. Now, certainly slaves or servants here, they, they, their duties overlap, don't they? But there's a difference between a slave and a servant. One is hired, the other is owned. And as Paul will put it elsewhere, he's saying, by the way, brothers and sisters in Christ, you have been bought with a price. You are not your own. You are God's. You are his Slave. In fact, we know in the, in the uh, ancient Israel, there were actually two kinds of slaves. One was a temporary slave. A man would get in debt, couldn't pay it off. He would sell himself into slavery, and he would be freed from that slaver either when he repaid his debt or when the Sabbath year came around and all slaves were released. So you could only be a slave for a maximum of six years unless you wanted to become a bond slave and one who willingly by your own initiation, bound yourself to your master. In fact, if, if you remember, they would take you, I think it's the right earlobe, they would take you to the doorpost and they would take that earlobe and put it against the doorpost and they would drive a nail through your earlobe as a permanent sign that you are now owned by this master. You know what Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, is coming and saying to Timothy and all of the rest who will hear, I want you to understand, I have been willingly and permanently bound myself in the service of the Lord. I am the slave of God. By the way, Paul was a man born free, gladly, uh, very much valued his freedom as we read elsewhere, and yet now he's gladly saying, I've been bought by Jesus. I'm his servant. I'm his slave. And I'll tell you this morning, if you are a follower of Christ, that's your position too. You are God's slave. You have been bought by him. Now the question, therefore, is how do we see that live out in your life? In what way are you acting like God's slave? In fact, that might be a great question to bat around for lunch, wouldn't it? Grab some friends here from church, go out to lunch and say, okay, how do you see your slavery to God born in your life? How is it impacting you? It was in the early days of Christianity. When Christianity became illegal in the Roman Empire, there was a young man named Sanctus. And he stood before the Roman governor on trial for the crime of being a Christian. And his life was hanging in the balance. And he was repeatedly told to renounce his faith and threatened with terrible death. But he responded every time, this young man, with these words, I am a Christian. In fact, they, they asked him all sorts of questions, and every question was asked him, he answered the same way, I am a Christian. What's your name? I am a Christian. Where are you from? I am a Christian. What do you do? I am a Christian. And so he was condemned to a public death in an amphitheater, on the day of his execution, he was fastened to a chair of a burning hot iron and was attacked by wild animals, surrounded by Roman soldiers at the time who throughout this deal offered to give him a quick death if he would simply renounce his faith. All they heard was him continually respond, I am a Christian. For Sanctus, this teenage boy, his entire identity, who he was, where he's from, what he does, was bound up in Jesus. 
I belong to Christ. He was and is a Christian, owned by God to serve him. Who do you serve? How would you introduce yourself? Your name, and would you say, a slave of God? Is that what your life bears out? Is that what you show and how you use your time and your resources and your skills? Is that how you, what you demonstrate when you decide where to serve the church and how? So Paul belonged to God. He didn't want to go anywhere else but God. He where God told him to go. He wanted to be, didn't want to be anything else but what God told him to be. Paul thought there was no higher calling and no greater joy than being owned by God. And so he encourages us to embrace that as well, I believe. An apostle of Jesus Christ, he says, and God's slave. But then he tells us for what end. You see, Paul not only identifies his position, but he identifies his purpose. Why was he God's slave or God's servant? Why was he an apostle of Jesus Christ? He lays out for us three goals here for which he is giving his life, for which he is laboring. You see the first there in verse 1, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. So Paul's laboring for saving faith. He's laboring that people would come to faith, come to salvation through faith in Christ. In particular, he says, I'm laboring for what he calls God's elect. These are the people whom God chooses, right? And so Paul says, God has chosen some, or he's elected some, and I'm going to work so that they would believe. By the way, God has always been choosing people. He chose Abraham as a pagan from Babylon. He chose, um, Abraham had two sons, as you know, and he chose Isaac and not Ishmael. And then Isaac had two sons, and he chose Jacob and not Esau, and on and on and on. God has been electing. And if you come here today and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I want to let you know God has chosen you too. God has elected you. This is God's word. You ever wonder, how is it that I believe You ever wonder, how is it that I was born into this family or heard the gospel at this time or was invited to church at that point? I'll tell you, part of that answer is God's electing grace in your life. And Paul says, I'm laboring for people like you. I'm laboring for those whom God has chosen or God has elected that they might put their faith in him and be saved. Now, I know that we all don't kind of see God's election in the same way. I'm, I understand that. In fact, many people have trouble even with that phrase, God's elect. We have to recognize, by the way, it's in Scripture. It's repeated over 30 times for us. But there's an objection that happens, right? And the objection is if God chooses his own, what about those he doesn't choose? And that very is troubling to, to many of us. And I think it's a very important question and something that we have to wrestle with. But let me, may I exhort you, if that's the question in your mind, even as I speak about God's elect, can you just table that question for just a moment? And, and, and before you're, you're kind of troubled by those he passes over, will you not let God fill your heart with amazement that he has not passed over you? He has chosen you. I mean, what bride who stands before her future husband on the day in which they exchange vows in order to be covenanted together looks out at the congregation and is troubled by the fact that why didn't he choose her? Or why didn't he choose her? Why didn't he choose her? No bride in her right mind thinks that. She is just simply amazed that he chose me. And at the very least, when we begin to consider election, I think that's the point to start. That that we would have this wonder and amazement of a bride on her wedding day that I have been chosen by the bridegroom. 
There's another objection, of course, that people have to this idea of election. And the objection is, if God has chosen those who will save, why, why labor at all? Why is Paul working? If God's chosen them, they're going to be saved anyways. Why do anything? Why pray? Why, why, why do missions? Why share the gospel? And I would simply, if that's a question in your mind, point you to Jesus. And Jesus would say, for instance, whoever comes to me, I will never turn away. There is a general universal call, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is constantly inviting people to come to him. And at the same time, this same Lord will say, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And so Jesus affirms both God's sovereignty in salvation and man's accountability to believe, as does Paul. In fact, you see here in verse 1, he's laboring what? For the sake of the faith, that's man's responsibility, of God's elect. That's God's sovereignty, divine sovereignty. And there is no contradiction in his mind. And so when the Philippian jailer says to Paul, what must I do to be saved? Paul does not look into him and say, well, we, first of all, we have to determine if God has chosen you. Right? What does he say? He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. In fact, I would suggest to you that far from uh, uh, this idea of God choosing discouraging ministry and missions and prayer, it actually encourages it. In fact, Paul's, at one time in his life, he's ministering in Corinth, is he not? And he is very discouraged and weary because he's not seen any fruit from his ministry. And Paul, or excuse me, God would appear to Paul in a vision and he would say, Paul, keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For Why? Because, for, I have many people in Corinth that belong to me. And so Paul gets all pumped up and he spends the next 18 months ministering in Corinth, knowing that there are some in Corinth in which God has chosen and that Paul has the great honor to be the one to bring the gospel to them that they might believe in Christ. And I would suggest to you what was true then is true today. And that if you and I are faithful in telling people about Jesus, calling people to faith, some will respond. That you could be encouraged. Some will believe. And I think often what you think, what, what keeps you from witnessing? And sometimes it's, we think it's a waste of time. I mean, if I invite them to church, they're not coming to church. If I tell them about Jesus, I mean, they're not, of all the people, they are not going to accept Jesus. My friends, don't put your faith in yourself, your own persuasive ability. God says, no, I have, I have people here. And so be faithful. Share the gospel with your coworkers and your neighbors and your, your family. And some will believe. This is what Paul gives his labor to. He says, I'm laboring for the faith of God's elect. I'm going to share the gospel. The second thing he labors for, after faith, comes knowledge. You see there also in verse 1. And their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So if faith opens our eyes to the knowledge of God, it's truth that Paul, after faith labors to make sure we understand. So Paul labors so that we would know more and more and more about who God is. He calls that truth. I think that's an interesting word. That's a helpful word for us today. Because many people in our culture do not think of religion and truth as having anything to do with each other. They think science and truth, and they think religion and morality, or religion and hints for life. And so you will hear things like people will say, I'm glad you found Christianity. That seems to work for you. Good for you. Well, it, you, my friends, <laughs> it doesn't matter if it works for us. 
In fact, quite often Christianity is, is, if you will, not working for me. It's bringing hardship and trouble in my life. It's not, it, it's not always bringing ease and blessing and comfort, is it? It's bringing sacrifice and giving, isn't it? So it's not a matter if it works for you. It matters if it is true. So next time someone says, I'm glad it works for you. I'm glad you found what you're looking for. You just look them in the eye and say, it has nothing to do with whether it works for me or not. It has to do with whether it is true. And Paul says, I'm laboring for the truth that you would come to know the truth and grow in the knowledge of truth and abound in the knowledge of truth. Truth is important, right? You, you, ever, you ever drive in in the mountains? And, and if you're, you're like me, I learned this from my dad, I like, it, if I'm taking a turn and my tires don't squeal a little bit, I'm driving too slow, okay? So, you know, I like, I like, it's like a roller coaster ride for me. So I'm having fun. We got a big 15-passenger van. I'm afraid that thing's going to tip over. But anyways, here we go. But what you do when you're driving, don't you? you? You look at the turn signs, right? You're always paying attention to the turn sign. And it says, this turn, you take 20 miles an hour, which means, by the way, you could take it at 35 or 36. But anyways, you, you, you see 20 miles an hour, and this sign is communicating something to you. Now you have a couple options, don't you? Right? T- turn ahead. 20 miles an hour. You could ignore the sign, right, and just keep on going. You could defy the sign and speed up. Or you could obey the sign and slow down. Now, those options are open to everyone. You can do whatever you want. But what you do does not change the truth of that turn. And in fact, what you do will not change the fact that there is implications for ignoring the truth or defying the truth. And, God, and so the Bible is constantly saying, we need to know the truth. I'm laboring, he says, for the knowledge of the truth. Why? Because truth is everything. In fact, you notice what he says there in the end of verse 1. It accords with godliness. It's that truth leads us and brings about godliness. So Paul, by the way, is not just filling our minds so we can have filled minds. He's, he's just not giving us information so that we can know stuff. Right? We, we go to Sunday school and, and sit for very long sermons. Right? Not just so we can have facts. We want it to transform us. We want it to change us. Paul says, I want you to know the truth so that you could abound in righteousness and good works. In fact, you'll see the phrase, if you read Titus this week, I think that would be a good thing for you to do. Just sit down and read Titus. You'll find that this phrase, good works, is actually repeated five times in this little book. God wants you to be giving yourself to good works. See, truth changes us. It changes the way husbands relate to wives. It changes the way that children and parents relate. It changes the way where we, we go to work and drive our cars and talk to our neighbors and serve as citizens. It changes what we think and what we give ourselves to. This is why I think we value God's word here. This is why we value our community groups that take, if you get together in community of people you're living close to one another, sharing life with one another, and you flesh out in light of the passage we thought about this on Sunday morning, what difference does it make in our life? So my question for you, is the truth transforming you? I think quite often we're challenged, but we're not changed. Where do you see yourself changing? And Paul says, I'm laboring for sanctifying truth. His third goal, if you will, is a goal of sustaining hope. It's found here in verse 2, and I think it might be my favorite verse in this whole book. He says here, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. He says, I'm laboring for their saving faith, for their sanctifying truth, and for a sustaining hope. A hope, you see that, of eternal life. Now, if you're a Christian, you, of course, believe in eternal life. My question for you is not if you believe it, but is it your hope? 
I mean, you hope for a lot of things. Some of us are hoping for a vacation to come, or we're hoping for retirement, or we're hoping for children, we're hoping to get married, right? And all these hopes that we have, when we have these hopes and we live for them and we think about them, is part of your hope eternal life? Does that grip you? Does that lay hold of you? Do you, as Randy Elkhorn, I think, helpfully has said, do you live for the dot or do you live for the line? Because this life is just a dot. It's just here and gone. Right? But we have an eternity coming up for us, don't we? And we shall live forever and ever and ever and ever with God. Even as, as, as Josh called us into worship this morning, that Christ suffered for sins once for all, the, unrighteous, or the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? Did you see that? That he might do what? Bring us to God, right? And Paul says God is going to bring you to himself forever. Are you living for that? Is that your hope? Paul says, I'm laboring for that hope, right? That, that our hope is not in the election coming up, right? And every, every two years we hear, by the way, I don't know if you know that this election is the most important election in the history of America. And, and then next year's election will be the most important, right? And this time everything's going to get fixed. Vote for that guy. Problem solved. We're, we're in utopia. Stop buying it. It drives me crazy. I'm, and by the way, I'm not saying don't vote, so don't misquote me once again, okay? Well, are you living for your family? Are you living for wealth? Are you living for retirement? Paul says, you know what I'm living for? I'm living for the hope that I will be with God forever and ever and ever. And you might think, okay, well, that sounds pretty silly. When it's 2018, are we really talking about eternal life? Yes, we are, because the Bible teaches it. In fact, it not only teaches it, but Paul says, listen, you could take it to the bank for two reasons. Number one, your hope of eternal life is an eternal promise. You see that there in verse two? I love this. In the hope of eternal life, which God promised before the ages begin. Here's the question I asked my kids last night. If God promised eternal life before time began, who did he make that promise to? Right? Because when you promise, you promise someone. So to whom has God promised this? He has promised it to himself within the Trinity. Our God is plural. And so the, the Father promised the Son before time began a bride. He says, Son, you will have a bride. You will have a people who will love you and follow you and look just like you. And the son promised the father children. He says, Father, I'm, I'm going to come one day and I'm going to die for, for the unrighteous. Why? Because I'm going to bring them to you, God. That's not just for us. It's for God. And so they, see, this, the theologians call this the covenant of redemption. A covenant that was not made from God to man as every other covenant in the Bible is, but actually a covenant within the Godhead that God would, would, would covenant with, within himself to redeem a people and to give them eternal life. And he did, made this covenant before the world began. So before you were born, or before, I don't know, World War I, before the Civil War, before the Revolutionary War, before the Protestant Reformation, before Christopher Columbus ever set sail, before the fall of the Roman Empire, the fall of Jerusalem, before Jesus ever walked on this earth, before, in fact, David, before Moses, before Abraham. Now, you go all the way back to Eden, and there's Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden and all the splendor. Before that, before the creation of this world, God promised himself to give you eternal life, and to give you eternal life. 
and to give you eternal life. It is an eternal promise. And that is, has been, therefore, his ambition from all time, the Father and the Son working together in perfect unity so that you and I might live forever. I love the verse in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but according to his purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And so I tell you this morning, you can be confident, can't you, that you will inherit eternal life. It's the oldest promise that's ever been made. And by the way, God is good at keeping his promises. As you see, Paul, he probably doesn't need to say it, but he says it anyways. He says there in verse 2, which God never lies. It's an unbreakable promise. That God, in other words, is not like you and me, who at times are deceitful. In fact, more times than we are willing to admit. You've perhaps heard the proverb that promises are like babies. They are easier to make than to deliver. So God, of course, makes the promises and God will deliver the promises. In fact, the author of Hebrews says it is impossible for God to lie. And by the way, he has promised you eternal life. Do you live for that hope? Is that your hope? That you're going to live forever and ever? I mean... You, you realize that. That's what God's offering you. And maybe, maybe you came here today and you're thinking, well, I don't know if I'm going to live forever and ever. I don't know if I will. Well, you go back to what Paul's first is laboring for. He's laboring for faith. You know, the Bible teaches that Jesus came to this world and he died for sinners. He take, took our debt upon him. He took our sin upon him. And, and then he rose three days later from the grave. And that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You'll have that hope. He offers that to you right now. He offers it to anyone who would believe that you would place your faith in Jesus Christ so that you might have that hope of eternal life. For those of us who come in this room and we already have it, my question is, do you live any different because of it? I mean, is your life exactly the same way as someone who, do, has, who has no hope of eternal life? When they say, when I, when I reach my 80, 90 years, whatever it is, and they put me in the ground, that's the end of me. I'm done, right? Are you living the exact same way that they're living? Because I think the hope of eternal life should cause us to live differently. I think that we should be sacrificial, self-giving, loving, joyful uh, uh, people, peaceful people, because we have hope. Our hope is not here. We're living for another hope, and that hope shall last forever and ever. And so Paul says, listen, this is what I'm laboring for. People come saving faith, that they would come to sanctifying truth, and that they would rejoice in a sustaining hope. And the question is, well, how do you bring those about? How do you actually get to those goals? Which leads us to our third word this morning. And last, we think about our practice. Our practice. Now, finish. here's a little pop quiz for you. Finish the sentence. God, who never lies, promised eternal life before the age began, and at the proper time, manifested it in, fill the blank. Right? What do you think? Manifested in. I wonder if many of us think we manifested in Jesus. And, of course, that's a good answer. But it's not Paul's answer. Look what he says there in verse 3. And at the proper time, manifested it in his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So Paul has his plan before time. And, and he says, okay, my plan before time is going to be revealed. It's going to be manifested or brought to life. Not through earthquakes and you know, lightning bolts and angels flying all over the place. But how? Through a man... 
teaching God's word, through a woman teaching God's word, through a man preaching God's word. I mean, that's to me is astonishing that the eternal promise of God appears when what? You and I share the gospel. Eternal life appears when you speak about Jesus. I like how one author put it. As you speak the gospel, Christ is made present. On a cold day, you can see your breath. It forms a cloud in the air. It is almost as if something like this is happening when we share the gospel. With spiritual eyesight, we see Jesus himself taking shape. He appears and people meet him in our words. So God God has put his eternal plan of salvation into our mouths. That we would communicate God's, what is it? You see that there in verse 3. Not our words, in his word. So we, we tell people about his word. And I think perhaps the greatest sickness in the church today is we've lost confidence in God's word. In fact, it's not just today. You go back to the 1930s, and the most popular pastor in America was a man named Harry Emerson Fosdick. He preached to a packed church that was built by John D. Rockefeller himself because this man was uh, kicked out of the Presbyterian church for heresy. He had an interview with Time Magazine in which he said, preachers who pick out texts from the Bible and then proceed to give their historic settings, their logical meanings, and their place in the theology of the writer are grossly misusing the Bible. Nobody, this is him, nobody who speaks to the public assumes that people are interested in the meaning of words spoken 2,000 years ago. And we don't need the Bible, he says. As a preacher, Christian preacher, we don't need the Bible and the, what began in 1930s, my friends, it, it's just picking up speed. And churches left and right are running after gimmicks or trying to create certain experiences or you'll get some therapeutic talks, a little scripture sprinkled on top. I want you to see what he says. He says that this is manifested in his word. Look, verse 3, through the preaching which I have been entrusted by the suggestion of God our Savior. By the command of God our Savior. It's not up to us. We don't get to decide. After all, we are his slaves. We do what he commands. And by the way, Paul preached. It seemed to work out okay for him. Jonah preached. I mean, it was even a terrible sermon, right? Nineveh fell to their knees. Peter preached. 3,000 people were saved. You look at history. You think about John Calvin and the preaching ministry he has. Or John Knox. He turned a nation around. Or John Wesley. Or John Edwards. Or today, John Piper. Or John MacArthur. All the Johns. They're all preaching, right? God's word. I mean... Right? Right? Let me tell you God's words. See, it's easy to be discouraged, isn't it? Easy for me to be discouraged. You think, uh, you know, you turn on the news and you got on one side, you got the rise of Islam and all those who, who hate Christians and they're persecuting Christians all around the world. And the other side, you got the rise of secularism and they don't like us any better. And then you look, by the way, look inside the church and you see division and, and ugliness and you look in, even in our own heart and you see sin and you think, what can we do against all that? How are we going to survive? How are we going to thrive? And God says, I'll tell you how. Through my word. And I don't know, do you you come on Sunday mornings thinking, God, I just want to hear you. You pray for your Sunday school teachers. You pray for preachers. You pray for your own heart. You pray that when you're ministering to someone others, you would minister to them through the word. Because I'm telling you, if God's not going to use this word, we have no hope. I don't, I don't have anything else. That's all I got. I don't know what you got, but I don't think it's going to work. All, all I have is God's word. And so, I, listen, we'll speak it, and we will pray it, and we will sing it, and we will love it, and we will read it, and we will preach it, and we will memorize it. We will follow it. We're going to obey it, and we're going to trust God is going to do his work through it. That's, 
Paul's exhortation, isn't it? To us, to Titus, you see verse 4 as we end our time in his word. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. I love that little phrase there. My true child in a common faith. Don't you think when Titus, when this was read at church, Titus kind of sat up a little bit higher? That Paul, I mean the impeccable Jewish rabbi, lawkeeper, the apostle of God. And Titus, on the other hand, is this converted Gentile, uncircumcised, and he says, you're my son. We share a common faith. And that faith extends beyond Crete, extends beyond Corinth, and it brings us even here into Virginia 2,000 years later that we, my friends, are part of something far bigger than we realize. It's Hamilton Baptist Church, just a little tiny, tiny part of this common faith that hundreds of millions of people share around this world. Why? Because God has united us together into a family. In fact, that's what this meal is all about. Right? As we commune with God, we commune with one another. And this is why we want to take it, as we celebrate that God has united us into this common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let me invite you to prepare your hearts as we prepare this supper meal, scripture instructs us that you would ask God um, to work in your life and even, if you will, uh, turn from sin, besetting sin in your life, that you might come with a clean conscience as we rejoice in his work. Why don't we pray together? Father, I am this morning gripped by these words that you, in your unimaginable grace to us, have given us the hope of eternal life, precisely because we've been bought by Jesus. I think we celebrate both those truths this morning in this Lord's Supper. We celebrate it in the faith of this family that we have been given through Christ's work eternal life and therefore we are owned by him. Help us to rejoice and delight, feed our souls as we consider these things this morning through your supper meal, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.